Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, writer, wanderer, adventurer, traveler. That really seems to be about all I'm doing these days, so we'll leave it at that. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm Molly's co-host here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast, and I am a registered kinesiologist. I am try to be based in Collingwood, Ontario, but we travel all around, which is awesome, at different clinics and camps and races and all sorts of things. I race a bit of mountain bikes, but increasingly I'm trying to do more and more other neat stuff, like strength training. Yeah. So today we're actually talking all about mental performance, which we've been kind of talking about a bunch, I'd say, in a lot of our Q&As. Our sports psych episode we had a few months ago did really well, so we sort of wanted to come back to it because the consummate athlete is also the one that is, you know, mentally stable, mentally invested in the sport, mentally like setting the right goals and, you know, just really has their stuff together mentally as well as physically. Yeah, we've done a few past episodes. Um, I'm trying to remember, recall the names of the people. Uh, Tracy Stannard. Tracy. So if you want to go back and get, you know, maybe a, a different, slightly different, you know, experience as far as how she's practicing. Tracy was a, what was her, she was Elite a... Elite gymnast. She was a gymnast, but then she was also, before she became focused on sports, she, if I recall, was actually a practicing psychiatrist or, or something like this. I made that up. You made that up. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you look back, but I lost the last bet. I think I lost the bet during this episode, actually, on... Uh, uh, yeah, Le- during LeBron it. James versus Allen Iverson, so don't know sports, apparently. Yeah, well, we only run a podcast on them, so that's fine. Right. Anyway, uh, other than, you know, strengthening our mental muscles, what have we been up to this week? Well, my brother just got married, so it was a sort of stressful week, I guess. It was all good. Good stress. Good stress. There's two types of stress. That's an important mental component Mm -hmm. uh, or concept we have to learn. Um, We're excited for the race. That's what we always joke about. We're Um, excited for the wedding. yeah, Yeah. If you tell someone they're not nervous for a race... You know, they're like, no, you're excited, and then it sort of becomes a joke, but that's the idea. So, similar to the wedding, you know, it's nervous. I had to make a speech. I was the, the best man, and... He crushed um, it. So, yeah, my, my little brother Martin got married, so it was good. It went off, I think, exactly how they wanted, which is all you can ask for, and yeah, I think it ran out a good time. Absolutely. Uh, Martin listens to the podcast as well, so... Yay, Martin! He's, um, he's other... of course, briefed on all these mental ideas and yeah. physical performance aspects. So. Well, other news, uh, if you head over to the Consummate Athlete YouTube page, we have a new Anywhere Core, Anywhere Strength video that we filmed about a month and a half ago now, but finally got edited and up there. So if you're looking for sort of a change up in your, you know, short workout for the week, you know, you want to add a little bit more strength training, but you don't necessarily want to go to the gym, this is a good one. Get and that's some... on, if they searched, would they search like a consummate athlete YouTube or what? Yeah, we'll include a link in the show notes too. But yeah, if you just go to YouTube, search consummate athlete anywhere strength, that'll pop up. And we have a bunch of listeners that actually just listen to the podcast on YouTube. Um for whatever reason, they maybe I don't know how the subscription to YouTube Red works, but you know it's easy to pull it up at the office, or you know for yeah. whatever reason they like YouTube. So. A fair amount of our episodes are on there. Not every episode, but right, right, fair amount. Um, anyway, uh, so let's talk about our current podcast with Danelle Kabush. Uh, you might recognize that last name. Uh, that's because we had her brother, the consummate athlete, mountain biker, push up expert beer drinking expert jeff kabush on the podcast a few months ago as well i was going to list that as her last palmer well yeah but i just didn't want people to be confused throughout and trying to think about it and then miss all of her amazing palmares so just clear the clear the air first i guess that's a good tactic uh so danelle is a phd in a variety of sort of uh psychology fields uh, she's obviously specialized down into now being a mental performance consultant. Um, but social psych was actually her first thing, not sports specific. Yeah, so, so that was pretty interesting. And, and I mean, she talks about how more and more that's sort of the way we're looking at things is, you know, athletes aren't just, you know, some special creature. They're just people who happen to be riding a bike. So a lot of the, you know, things about group interactions and just how you deal with, you know, social pressure and stuff is still very applicable. So as always, I ask her a bunch of questions about sort of her education and why she chose different things and what she'd do different. So if you're someone, you know, taking kinesiology right now or wondering what to do in school, um, you know, or someone with a sports psychology degree, she has some tips for you there. 
Uh, we also talk a lot about goal setting and habits. So the big thing this year seems to be habits over goals. And so we talk a bit about that sort of change in linguistics. I was going to say, like, isn't that kind of, would you agree it's a semantic change? I, I mean, mean, I think it's an important one. You're in the magazine industry. You just need to change stuff and call it something different. It's like, true. how does Cosmo have a magazine every month? Hey, there are like a million different ways to be sexy, all right? Yeah. And yes, they are maybe reiterating some of them, but... It's like different ponytail variations. Yeah. I'm flipping my hair right now. I apologize I if someone from Cosmo is listening. Yeah, please hire me at some point. <laughs> I would like to write for you. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, habits, goals. But Danelle also is a consummate athlete in that she, you know, had some varsity running experience. She raced mountain bikes, which is sort of how I initially met her, and then she transitioned into racing Xterra at a very high level, going to world championships, racing for the Luna, what was the Luna team? Yeah, uh, I actually for, met her eight years ago uh, in Las Vegas at Xterra West Championships. Uh, I sucked. It was really hot. Um, I was not prepared for it at all. But she she did pretty well. I forget if she actually made the podium at that race. It was a really, like, crazy big race that year. Uh, but I actually interviewed her for Cyclocross Magazine about her brother. So apologies to Nanelle for, you know, kind of talking about her brother versus her amazing accomplishments. But we talked a bunch about her stuff, too. Uh, actually, on the note of habits and practice... I remember the one thing she told me about growing up with Jeff in the house was that every day after school, he would the come. X-Files the started. X Files started. Uh, he would come home after school and go out in their backyard and practice like bunny hopping on and off of his picnic table. Yep. <laughs> so every how day, it works. and that's how she got good was because she, you know, would get kind of annoyed about you know, him practicing and she wanted to get into it. So there you have it. Practice. Habits. Yeah. No, that's what I always try and tell adults. Like the difference between those little kids who hop around on the jumps is that by the time any formal practice has started, they've usually got like a thousand reps of whatever thing they're trying to do. And it's always, you know, convincing the other one to try and jump over him or her or whatever, right? It's always the next combination and they're always like the stuff they dream up like you can just let's just pause and say as adults maybe don't try to jump over each other immediately well no it's progression they're also pretty good with progression like it gets a little nerve-wracking watching them but they've usually like jumped a gap that's like similar and they're pretty smart with it so anyhow that's why kids are good and they progress it and stuff and obviously the kids bounce and adults don't so much but the other thing with Danelle is that, what was my other point with Danelle? She's a mom. She is a mom and a blogger. So her blog actually was quite popular. She, as she said, she sort of let it come by, uh, slip a bit, but I looked back and she actually has posted a couple times in this year. So it's not, as far as blog slippage goes, it's actually pretty good. But if you look back in those articles and if you are sort of an athlete mom or wanting to be fit for your pregnancy or, you know, are struggling post-pregnancy, I know a lot of people really like Danelle's blog. Um, and I mean, I read it and there's lots of cool stuff in there too. You know, my interest is more for clients who are going through that or, you know, whatever, uh, similar situations. So yeah, her blog is also really good. So we'll link to that. Yeah. I think that's about it for our kind of long winded intro. Apologies for that. Thanks for sticking around for those of you who haven't fast forwarded through us. Uh, as always, all the show notes and stuff are over at consummateathlete.com. And yeah, let's dive in with Danelle. We may as yeah. well start there, like, with the, the education. I always like to go through that because, you know, we do have some young listeners or parents of listeners who are curious okay. about where to go with this degree or what degree to take or whether to take a degree. Mm-hmm. So I always like to hear whether, you know, you're, you're jaded and wish you never took the degree or what you would do <laughs> different or, or anything like yeah. that. So. You know, where did you start? Like what, you know, you got finished high school and you were racing at that point. So, so what did, what did you do at this point in your life? Yeah, well, I grew up here on the island in Courtney, just north of here. Some people know Cumberland in the mountain biking community. So same, same area. And then I was a runner in track at the time. So I went to University of Victoria for two years and was running there. And then I had some Canadian friends that I'd grown up running with that were down at the University of Washington in Seattle. And my club coach at the time just encouraged me, 
know, if you want to get faster, you should go down south, and NCAA is really competitive. And uh, so I looked into it, and I was able to transfer. I transferred there in what they call your junior year or my third year, as we say in Canada. And so I was down there for two or three three years because they have an outdoor track season um, where I studied psychology and uh, also did a degree in French <laughs> to prolong my um, my track another year there. So that's, of course, being helpful married to a Quebecois now. Um, but yeah, I took I took a human performance class there. And that was when my first aha moment where I'd always been interested in psychology growing up and I read books in high school and um, what motivates people to do the things they do. And then that class made me think, oh, this can be combined with my other passion of sport. And that was my first uh, introduction to the field of sports psychology. And then I wanted to come back to Canada for my master's, and at that time I'd gotten into mountain bike racing as an athlete, and I chose the University of Ottawa because they have a very uh, applied sports psychology program, and I got to work with my supervisor, his name's Terry Orlick, one of the kind of the gurus of sports psychology in Canada, um, and I still use his book in my class, so he, he has some great books out, really easy to read. And then I stayed at University of Ottawa for uh, a doctorate officially in social psychology, and my supervisor for that was um, an athlete, so very, uh, we, we were in what's called the motivation lab, so all my research was around athletes and motivation. And so it was more of the academic sort of route. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned there, what would you do differently? So now when I get younger students coming to talk to me and say, I'm interested in sports psychology, or I want to work on the applied side and work with athletes, um, <clears throat> I always tell them to, my advice is to take the counseling route, because since then I've picked up more and more counseling courses, and I'm also in, in process of get, um, collecting my supervised hours now to be a registered clinical counselor. So uh, I've learned and my approach too is that mental health and mental performance are not obviously mutually exclusive and the, the skills needed to, to counsel and understand sport and athletes is very intertwined. So right. that's kind of my, my yeah. story of lots where of I'm at there. now. Yeah, lots <laughs> yeah. of stuff I want to follow. So why did you do social psych as your PhD? I think I was just looking at the Department of Psychology because that was my main interest and connected. I was already at University of Ottawa and I'm always interested in groups and social processes and how, you know, that applies to team sports as well. So I think it was more of a natural fit with the supervisor, but um, that was the main focus of the lab at the University of Ottawa. So that's really probably the main reasons I, I stuck around there. Yeah, some of, the social, some of the social psych is really, really neat. I, I remember just reading a couple of textbooks just for fun when I mm -hmm. was in university and some of the stuff around like groupthink and I'm trying to think of the other yeah. terms, but like, like uh, what's it called with like uh, bystander apathy and stuff like that, like just people who see stuff and then won't do anything because mm -hmm. they're just, you know, in, in a group or whatever. Yeah, it's fascinating. Probably the most uh, famous example of that is the Stanford um, prison experiment. I don't know if you came across that in yeah, your textbook. That's, is it Milford or Milgram, right? Yes, yes, that's right. I'm uh, scratching my brain here too, but how, just how people can change and act and behave in ways they never would have thought they would when they get get in a group in, yeah. a, in like an in, environment in, like that. In, in yeah. a role, which I always thought like the, that one gets thrown around a fair bit as like, oh, this is crazy and people are crazy, but it's sort of, to me, the, the positive spin on that is, you know, when we have, we're trying to reach a goal or be a certain way, you know, the, the acting and, and, you know, trying to set yourself up to be in that uniform that you expect, you know, that, mm. right? Like, so if you wanted to be, yeah. you know, on the podium, my best example I can think of is like bringing a podium kit to a race because you expect yourself to be on the podium. Right. Yeah. You know? Or dressing like a professional, or I'm trying to think of other sort of sport-related things, but um, yeah, that's like it. acting the part ahead of time in a way. It sounds like you're saying, and yeah, 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 fake it till you make it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, so. exactly. I, I, there's a distinction I read about in one of um, the books I have on. It's an older book by Dr. James Lohr, I think, and he talks a lot about the performer self and the real self, and and that relates a lot to what you're saying is that you're almost like whether it's sports or actual acting, you're on a stage and you need to play the part and bring the like you're saying, wear the kit 
um, and have the script that you or the emotions and everything you need to to make it happen. So that's a it's like you you learn your lines ahead of time and then it happens more automatically and yeah yeah. yeah. No, that's interesting. So. I'll look into that. I re- I've been reading a bit more. Like I always think of sort of health, longevity, and fitness, but I've recently been reading and sort of performance as like a fourth element because you know we all know the people that have tremendous fitness but can't you know perform on race day or you know choke mm. when they're giving their speech in front of people, and so right. a, a performance is very much different. Like the this example that was used in this book was LeBron James talking about practice, and they were giving him a hard time because he wasn't coming to practice. I don't but, think that was LeBron mm. James. I think it was LeBron James. No, it definitely wasn't. Well, you can go. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was. I'm pretty sure it was LeBron James. But anyhow, this basketball player who was doing really well, and he was like leading the team and like you know doing super well in performance. But then they were talking about practice, and they kept calling him. Oh, it's Allen Iverson. I apologize. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyhow, that was like an example of how like performance. Not that it was right or wrong, but that performance mm-hmm. is a separate like skill, I guess, or a separate element. Right. So to uh, perform on demand is the cliche term everyone likes to throw around in sport these that, days. Right? It, does, it does seem to be the big thing at the moment. I was never I was good at consistency, but never the like performance on demand. So I never made any of the teams. In those clutch situations. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, I was always yeah. reliably fifth, but I never got to go. Or, not yeah. not that he's bitter or anything. No. Not yeah. <laughs> Um, so then my next question, so you mentioned you're working on becoming a registered clinical consultant? Counselor is Counselor. what it's called here Okay, in so now tell yeah. me, like, what what is that then, like, uh, you know, it's not a, a psychologist, so what, what, what is involved with this designation? Well, it's a lot of similar skills that a psychologist might have, but I think the difference is psychologists would probably diagnose more mental health issues, whereas counselors just sort of um, work with clients to you know, feel better and see things better, depending on your approach. Um, but yeah, that's probably the key difference is not diagnosing, you know, like a psychologist might diagnose learning disorders or mental illness and things like that. So, so that's probably the main difference. So from your PhD and your sports psych undergraduate, like what does that let you do on top of that, just the education that you have already? Um, well, it lets me, uh, if I wanted to open a private practice in counseling, once I'm done my hours, of course, um, or work in a clinic, seeing, I guess you could call it more mainstream clients. Um, uh, okay. And it also, when I am working with athletes, um, everyone has a certain scope of practice. So sometimes there are psych- sports psychologists who are registered psychologists who work with athletes. Um, you might be a, a clinical counselor who also has a sports psych or um, mental performance consulting designation through our Canadian Sports Psychology Association, or if you are just clearly um, trained to work with athletes on mental performance and psychoeducational work, um, that would limit your scope. So for example, if you don't have the clinical training or are a psychologist, you might choose, you might be working with an athlete who say has a mental health issue, like an eating disorder, so you would refer them out. But if you have those skills, you might continue and you'd still work in a team when you do refer, but if you have those skills, you might to choose. You could, because your scope is wider, you could deal with um, more clinical depression as well as their their sport skills things, and you could continue to work with that athlete if that's under your scope of practice. Gotcha. That makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. now, right now, and as long as I've known you, I think you've gone via like a mental performance consultant is that yeah that's the canadian term for it yeah and in the u.s i think they call it a sport psychology a certified sport psychology concert consultant so it's different terms in different countries but yeah right very similar training and background and credentials so now within that i remember from the terry orlick stuff which we'll link to terry's books and stuff because that's sort of the avenue Mm -hmm. that i think you and i initially got introduced was actually through Mm -hmm. some of that stuff uh, and they are great books. I know they. I see them still with a bunch of young athletes periodically, or you know, every year I see oh, okay. one or two are still carrying around uh, the. It's the pursuit of excellence, right? Yeah, yeah. I actually use it for my. As it's one of my texts for the Camosun College course I'm teaching right. right now, and he just came out with a new edition in 2015. So it's great. Oh, yeah, okay. perfect. Um, so what I was going to say is, in that there's a lot of you know talk of sort of performers and again we have performers as far as like executives and stuff like that so I'm wondering Mm -hmm. you know in your practice do you see people outside of the sport realm or or do you say 
find yourself mostly focused on sort of athletes? Yeah, I guess today it's been mainly focused on athletes. The more, um, I mean, I have seen a variety of dancers over the years. So that's kind of whether it's um, Irish dancing, for example, or ballroom dancing. I, wor I worked with a, a couple, a pair, I guess you could call it, for a number of years in, in Calgary. So that was probably the closest I got to. I mean, it's still sport, but a bit different area of performance. Um, yeah, but there are people in my field who go on to work with um, executives or even, as you know, some of Terry's work. He looks at, uh, he's, he has interviews with Chris Hadfield, you know, the performance of being a, <laughs> an astronaut or um, mission control, um, people who work at airports, you know, anyone with like intense kind of perform on demand jobs like that or military people. So it's interesting how these same concepts that relate to the emotional and mental side of sport can apply to anything that's in that performing realm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm wondering then, like, can you lay out what I guess sports psychology is, you know, we, some of the elite athletes or, you know, up and coming elite athletes are going to get exposed to this, you know, through the national team or whatever, but you know, we're all, mm -hmm. you know, participating, you have a lot of really high level masters, you know, you have people who are, are wanting to perform and maybe haven't been introduced to this idea of mental skills or, or sports psychology, and just sort of what that means beyond sort of something where, you know, psychiatry or something, they picture people on couches and stuff. So right. wonder, <laughs> like, do you have sort of a, a, a elevator pitch or, or something as far as like, <laughs> what sports psych is, or, or even an example would be awesome too. Yeah, that's a good question, because that is kind of a misconception, you know, lying on the couch or um, either the psychiatry view of it or the another misconception sometimes is like the sports psych is just someone who's like a motivational guru, like a Tony Robbins type of guy who just comes into the locker room and gets everyone pumped up. Um, but yeah, it is a bit more, I think it can be a bit more um, methodical or like from a training base I always compare it to physical training that you don't just get on your bike and ride once a week or go to the gym if you're trying to work on your arm strength and pump some pump some weight once a month and hope to see results so the link with sort of the mental emotional side of it is that we can sort of self-manage our mental and emotional skills and it's kind of a it's like a strength that can be improved um, just like when our brain learns something new, um, like I use the example in my class, I'm getting to know everyone's names and it's just a small little spark in my brain that <laughs> might match their face to their name at first. But as I see them and get to know them, it becomes more and more solidified and that that spark beca can become a super highway where I just remember their name instantly. And then if I went away and didn't see see these students for a couple months, I run into them around campus and I just can't find their name again. So it is like a skill and a muscle that needs to be worked out, whether it's um, improving your ability to focus, um, even imagery as a skill that you can work on, your ability to set goals effectively, that the more you do it, the stronger you'll, you'll get at it and the more quick and efficient you'll have access to it, I guess, when we're, we're looking at that, putting it at the top level of being able to perform on demand. If you've worked on these skills repeatedly, like your physical training, then you'll have more quick and efficient access to them when you need them the most. That makes sense. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So now, maybe if I give you uh, an example of a question, we had one that came through, and this is sort of middle-aged, sort of master's athlete, has been mountain biking for a lot of years, um, and he's finding that he's sort of lacking motivation, um, and has all, you know, sort of lost some fitness and plateaued even, you know, not seeing improvements over this mm -hmm. last year, and so... He's, he's sort of looking on places to go, and I think he's looking from a any any perspective, I guess, as far as where he could go from now. So, I mean, there certainly could be a training element that to that, but I'm wondering as mm -hmm. far as this, like, motivation, um, you know, some, maybe someone's achieved the goals they've had previously, and now they're sort of floundering. Like, is there a step or a, a process, a form or something that someone could go through to try and, you know, re-spark that motivation for training? That's a good question, and it sounds like from what you're saying that was this an athlete who was performing at a high level, uh, and now the the performance isn't quite there because of um, aging 
aging out a bit or like... I, I think that's probably part of it I, I don't think we're talking mm-hmm. world class but I think we're talking yeah. about like you know they were competitive and racing some I think cross country and you know doing some mm-hmm. pretty cool big st- things and then you know now they're sort of just participating in this last season and you know as, as, yeah. as life happens yeah and I think that can be um, a challenge to find new goals that excite you and I think the word the word I always use is that are optimally challenging so recognizing because sometimes a it can be a a struggle when athletes get stuck in a a little bit of a motivational slump maybe like that when you're comparing even yourself to a previous self that was performing at a higher level or when we're looking at just you know outcome results of going faster doing better and if that's always your standard of comparison to get you motivated that can be you know a bit of a struggle so sometimes the one of the options you can look at is what you know, looking at your life where it is right now, how much you're willing to, for this particular athlete, put into the sport, whether it's racing and training goals, and look for something that would be an optimally challenging goal for him or her at this moment in time. And hopefully those are sort of self-reference goals to say this is, you know, it's a training part too, just like mental skills. You might have a baseline and then say, what would be the next thing I could improve that would be exciting and motivating and that's I mean that's a big question you'd have to explore with that mm-hmm. athlete but it might just be simple things like getting on my bike this many times a week and you know something that will be a bit of a challenge but also see some sort, sort, sort of end goal to work towards and that's you know that's a lot of athletes struggle with that like oh I, I'm not as fast or as good as I used to therefore I just can't find the motivation so you kind of have to shift that to looking at the more holistic picture of not just the results, but little things that can get you going, whether it's just being more social in your training. There's all, there's lots of different parts of that piece, I think. Um, yeah, I think there's, I think you covered a lot of good ideas there for sure. I think the, the your last piece, actually, the social piece, you know, he, if, we're, mm. if we're not world class or we're not, you know, the best master cyclist ever, you know, for whatever reason, life or otherwise, maybe just our interest, mm-hmm. you know, if you've been doing something this, in this case, 18 years of mountain biking, you know, you might, yeah. just, you might be getting bored, you know, and so mm-hmm. there's different disciplines of mountain biking, there's different different disciplines of cycling. But you know, with our podcast, like this is really both Molly and mine's, you know, attempt to get out of cycling and look at other sports uh-huh. and, you know, mixing things up, you know, and, and you know, we're, we're obviously we like endurance sport, but, you know, going and joining a, a rec frisbee league or, you know, learning about strength training, or, you know, as you said, mm-hmm. the, the social thing, I think is a big part, because you know, just joining a, a riding group or a, you know, a spin class or something where you're going to have communication with people like that, could, mm-hmm. that could be enough to make it enjoyable and keep you moving. Right. We're, oh, for we're sure. We're not going to play Frisbee, Peter. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Molly doesn't like Frisbee. She was quite, quite non-participative. Participate? I don't even know. I don't know what the word is. She didn't participate in the podcast with our, our Frisbee person when they we had <laughs> But I was just gonna say, did you try it out, Molly? Like, nope. Actual? No, nope. okay. she won't. Refuse to believe it's a sport. Because <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I was gonna say, well, sometimes you have to try out. There's so many sports out there, isn't it? Right to see, well, what could be the next uh, to find out if you like it. In other words, but uh, right. sometimes maybe you've already decided that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, he, he. I think he still likes mountain biking. So I mean, I think it's just finding, you know, the race and the goal, like you say, but making it so that it's not a race result, but maybe, you know, it's a, a, it could be a, a fitness or a time up a hill or a wattage, but also mm-hmm. skills. I think a lot of people who have been mountain biking for a long time and just, you know, haven't reached that elite level often are missing a lot of the, the skills components and the fun. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, mm-hmm. if you're not hopping logs and going around corners really fast, then you sort of have missed out on what mountain biking actually is. Yeah. So that's like my personal, you know, not vendetta, but my personal goal for people is to get them to experience that because it's a game changer once they figure out, you know, something new like that where they go a little faster or they feel really competent. Mm-hmm. And that's a great point that you make that is particularly relevant to masters athletes. And I also think of that in my swimming group, too. It's not like we're at an age where we're necessarily going to be setting world records or I mean, I shouldn't say that about swimming because masters records are set all the time. But, you know, that makes it fun to say, can I improve my stroke or in the mountain biking um, some sort of process goal that, like you said, is going to make it even more fun? Can I corner faster? Can I learn to go off a bigger drop? Whatever you know, uh, excites you on your own level of, uh, 
skill. So, uh, and yeah. And I think even maybe pulling from your experience, I mean, you were, we haven't even talked about your accomplishments as a, as a, a runner, as a triathlete, and as a mountain biker. Like, you were professional in Xterra for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was even while having, you had kids periodically throughout that process. Really weird yeah. way of putting that. <laughs> periodically, <laughs> periodically, a kid popped out. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. And you, your blog covers a lot of that, right? Like that was sort of some of your writing for a while, and maybe even still mm-hmm. is sort of on that. You know, being really fit as a mother and dealing with the challenges of that, right? Yeah, and that you know, speaking of motivation too, I I, I feel privileged to have experienced sort of three different sports, like at a quite a serious level from running to cross country mountain biking to Xterra because they all give perspective on each other. And, and that's where having kids and keeping racing, I'm not sure I was at that point where I don't know if I would have continued after, um, if I hadn't had kids, because it kind of gave another funny enough to say, I was still, I just started, I was just new to Xterra. So I knew I still had some unfinished business as they say, but um, having children gave another level of challenge to say, well, let's see if I can balance this no sleep kids training, uh, traveling to races. And that's what kept it exciting for me to probably continue another five or six years into motherhood at pretty serious level as well. Right. So, yeah. So, so then how did you, you know, you, you obviously knew, you know, coming your, your post pregnancy, postpartum and, you know, you, you would be less fit than you were previously. So then what did that, like, did you set goals, you know, based on a race result or did you set goals sort of from where you were? Like, how did you go forward in those first months after getting back? Yeah, that's a good question um, because it is like starting from, feels like you're starting from zero again physically because your body's just spent nine months creating a baby and, uh, and it really, first it was just getting the training in and recovering, um, but yeah, I was fortunate to, I think, working with a really good coach who through the whole, even through the pregnancy process, got to kind of learn more about that whole, the physiological part of it. Um, but yeah, it was just like, what is optimally challenging now? Get in, get in shape. And, and I think the biggest learning was uh, going with the flow. And when we're talking about goal setting, um, you can't be too, even there's research too, the more rigid you are, um, sometimes it's hard to be. Uh, effective at reaching your goals you got to be able to adapt and have sort of overall maybe monthly goals but also be able to adapt and when you have setbacks to just sort of go with the flow so that was probably the biggest learning but yeah I was racing again I think about six months after my first child my daughter was born so that was interesting Yeah. So, but I mean, the, the important thing there, I think, is that you didn't expect yourself to be perfect in month one, right? You maybe had a goal no. six months away, but then probably your more important race was eight to 12 months away, was it? Yeah. My first world championship in Xterra was about 12 months away. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was, yeah, it was just sort of a gradual build in patience towards that goal and knowing that the fitness would come and know that, it would take a while and that was probably the biggest biggest learning that you just kind of like you said like your strength of just being consistent and trusting that it will the fitness will come for sure yep in- unless you're trying to qualify for some sort of world <laughs> championship team you get taken but uh, that's okay but whatever it's fine <laughs> Um, so what I'm wondering then is, you know, so, you know, this world championships is 12 months away and this could be, you know, someone's going to do BC bike race or they're going to, you know, they want to lose 20 pounds in 12 months or something, right? They have, they want to squat 200 pounds in 12 months from now. So then what, you know, Mm -hmm. even draw from your own experience there, like what in the first month then, like, how do you motivate those habits and that, you know, how do you act that part or, or, or proceed towards that? you know, world championship racing, Danelle, how do you get there? <laughs> and how, has anyone ever said, I want to lose 20 pounds in a year? I don't think anyone has ever said that. It's always like, I want to lose 20 pounds by like next Friday. Yeah. I just saw yeah. something that like, if, if people would just how realistic, commit, yeah, yeah. Cause everyone wants to do like two pounds in a week. But if well, that's because, it, mm-hmm. like, the stupid thing is, like, you can lose, like... Yeah, like, that's a maximum. But, like, apparently, if most people would just say, like, I'm going to lose half a pound a month, so six pounds in a year, it would be mm-hmm. so much better than what anyone is really doing. And it, but it seems so easy 
that no mm-hmm. one ever does it. And then they end up gaining six pounds plus a year. Yeah. So anyhow, <laughs> how do you motivate those first steps? You know, when we've, we've decided we have a goal, like, yeah. how do you get, how do you start? Well, it's interesting because we're talking about the weight loss one. And I think in, um, in your, one of your emails before this podcast, you talked about the comparison with, with New Year's resolutions. And that is probably one of the most common, you know, being after the holidays, you know, whether it is making a team or, you know, the long-term objective outcome goal you want, or I want to lose weight, is that when we look at sort of those, if you, if you just set the goal like that, the reason, you know, New Year's resolutions fail uh, you know, I think I read a study where they followed a bunch of people who'd set these New Year's resolutions, and um, within a few weeks, a quarter of them had stopped, had failed at continuing to pursue their goal, and then by six months, like 60% had fallen off the train. Um, and the reasons they fail is because they don't, they just set, don't set specific short-term goals. I call it the recipe of how to get there. So you have the long-term goal. And that's part of the recipe, you know, like you said, losing two pounds a week, but that's still kind of an objective. Um, it's like if you're going to bake banana bread, that's one of my favorites out there. You don't say, I'm going to bake banana bread at the, uh, the end of the month. You still have to have the steps to, or the end of the day, you could say, the steps for how to do that, step one, uh, and follow the recipe. And if you don't have those sort of those recipe steps to get you motivated, sort of, you know, and the other reason you need the first step, I guess, is having a plan, which is where coaching comes in for the athlete. But sort of the um, if we're using the weight example, um, how I'm going to do it, uh, does it involve other people um, where with whom what are the potential obstacles I might uh, encounter or setbacks uh, and have a plan for those. So if people haven't thought through all these things and they're more um, they're not going to be. They're not going to have, I guess, a guided plan for how to get there. So that's probably the first step, I would say, in a long-winded answer there. Health IQ is a life insurance company that promotes a health-conscious lifestyle through financial rewards. They've used science and data to get lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people just like you, including those who exercise four times a week through cycling, weightlifting, swimming, running, whatever consummate athlete lifestyle you're you're undertaking. Research has shown that people who are highly active through exercise have a 22% lower cancer risk, 50% lower heart risk, and 34% lower risk of early death. Many people who exercise regularly don't realize that they can get a special rate with Health IQ if they qualify through the Health IQ quiz. Health IQ has special rates for cyclists, runners, triathletes, vegans, and other health-conscious people, so you can qualify by scoring elite on quizzes for specific lifestyles. Essentially replacing BMI with waist-to-hip ratio for better predictors of cardiovascular disease when it comes to weightlifters and muscular builds. That's great for me. They also have replaced the LDL-HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for low-carb and paleo dieters, which is a better predictor of cholesterol health, and they don't take into account one incidence of family history if you're otherwise healthy. So, go over to healthiq.com slash capod. All lowercase. And take that quiz. Um, They have a bunch of different quizzes on the website, and the website's pretty well designed, so it's worth heading over there, checking it out, and again, using that link, healthiq.com slash C-A-P-O-D. I love it. I love it. There's always good stuff and long-winded answers. (laughs) um, So, you know, there maybe a first step even for someone who has this is, you know, to sort of even list possible obstacles you know that sounds like you know they Mm -hmm. have the goal i want to be lighter i want to you know be faster on my bike you know and so maybe even saying like you know what are the reasons that i'm not doing it or maybe even maybe backing Mm -hmm. up it should be you know why like why are you you know why do you have to or why do you want to do that yeah like uh uh, why do you want to do the goal is that what you're saying yeah i guess because i mean to me if if you know, you are obviously motivated to do X Terra. You had a Y, um, mm-hmm. but I think sometimes for, especially for age groupers, you know that that goal in the future, that point B. Um, you know, you have point A. You know where you are, but where you know, 
knowing what that goal is and why you want to do it, right? When it's not world yeah. championships, you're not just like your, your identity is tied to you being an Xterra athlete. You know, if you're just a person, mm-hmm. you know, and you're a casual mountain biker, there isn't world mm-hmm. championships, right? So sometimes that goal yeah. setting and that the resolutions, I think get crazy because there isn't, you know, an obvious why or an obvious point B that we're going for? Well, I think we had, so yeah. we had a guy uh, in our Q&A we actually just recorded yesterday that wanted to, like, lose 20 more pounds, and he was plateaued at whatever he was at. And it was sort mm-hmm. of interesting because then we started talking, like, does he actually need to lose 20 pounds? Like, should somebody right. have muscle? And, or even you know, is like, that a good goal? Does like, that goal make sense? Like, is, is weight, <laughs> you know, weight the only metric that we can define ourselves by? Like, is there, you know, a, a work capacity? Yeah. You know, could he climb a hill on his bicycle faster? Could he lift more weights in the gym? You know, is there a body composition or how he looks or how he feels? You know, versus, yeah. you know, why are we trying to lose 20 pounds? Yeah, that's a good point. And even, um, you know, we're in a very data-driven society right now with all these metrics, but also um, focusing how how you feel. Like, you know, sometimes a weight thing is a trial and error. I know athletes who, you know, they're trying to find their optimal race weight. And sometimes when they go too low or they think they should maybe be, they feel, you know, they lose their power. They feel they're hangry all the time, obviously, in some cases. And sometimes it's like that is more important measure of where is a healthy, healthy line. And you're right about, you know, those that kind of relates back to the New Year's resolutions that a lot of them are chosen for sort of externally motivated because society thinks I should set this goal. Um, So it does have to be more your internal reasons for wanting to do it. And and it's the research shows that if you choose goals for more sort of intrinsic internal reasons, then you're more likely to persist at them for longer. So that why is is a great first step to say, why do I want this goal? And even athletes, you know, as developing athletes, sometimes because they're in an Olympic sport, sometimes that can even be the externally externally imposed goal, like, oh, I want to go to the Olympics, but they're maybe on the pathway seven or eight years out from even showing potential to go to Olympics. So even I think sometimes setting that goal too far in the future isn't realistic or really intrinsic until you're closer to showing potential to that goal too, if that makes sense. So it can be too far. It might not be, if it's not realistic and it's not an internal reason for following the goal at this moment in time, then maybe it's not helpful to focus on it either, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. I've definitely Mm. had a few athletes over the years who, you know, the point B is, I guess, obvious and that they've chosen their point B and that's, that's great. It's the Olympics, Mm -hmm. it's world championships. I guess for me, it was national championships, apparently. The dream goal. Um, yeah. I don't know why we're harping on that. Yeah, <laughs> harping on da- it. Danelle, all your counseling here is bringing up these rep- repressed feelings. Yeah, and stuff. yeah Jeez. Going He's just going to be like sobbing after this. Um, but, you know, their point A in this case, I wonder, is the problem, right? They almost need someone or something to tell them, like, no, like, that's not the, the seasonal goal. The, you know, midterm goal is not the Olympics. The midterm goal is, like, you need to go mm-hmm. back and you know, race provincially or, you know, in state races, local races and figure out, you know, how to ride your bike and race your bike before you jump on. Right. And I think, you know, we see that a little bit with people going to national or international competition too early. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And they can just end up discouraged and frustrated. Um, You know, mountain biking is an example where the numbers are getting bigger and bigger. And some people go over to Europe and they just get pulled right away. And it's a costly trip and yeah, you get the experience of the environment, but the actual racing is kind of, kind of tough. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it is like a step ladder to say, get good. You know, even here on Vancouver Island, there's this amazing Island mountain bike series. So, you know, and the trails are so technical. So it's like, get really good at that. And then provincial. Yeah. There's kind of a step ladder to, to think of what's the next step. Again, that's what's the optimal, most optimally challenging. What's the most realistic next step to focus on. Mm-hmm. If you're motivated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you see any, you know, mistakes people make? And I, I guess we, we've talked a lot about goal setting. I mean, we can stay on goal setting here. Like, is, uh-huh. there, is there something that comes to mind as far as goal setting missteps, like mistakes people make? Yeah. Other than the ones we've mentioned, maybe being um, unrealistic, but sometimes setting 
sometimes a challenge um, with athletes or masters athletes in particular who have lots of other commitments and career or family goals is setting too many goals or not reconciling or recognizing conflicting goals. Um, you know, if you value lots of time with your family on the weekends, but you also have this goal of being a national champion, then recognizing, you know, something's got to, there might be some conflict there and what you value and your goals. So that can be, that's can a, be a misstep because yeah, we're, we're, we're all time warped, right? We all think we have all this more time than we do. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, yeah, not setting enough short term sort of step ladder goals that we've talked about. I think those are the biggest ones. Um, and even thinking beyond the big goal, you know, some of the, the other side of it we've talked that you touched on with maybe a master's athlete is once you reach your dream goal, your ultimate goal, how do you reset or recalibrate? Or if a setback or an injury comes, those are what I call what if plans in your goal setting. So, you know, what if, you know, the dream goal at the end of the year is to make a world championship or a national team? What if I get injured? What if, you know, all the things that we don't like to foresee happening do? The more you've thought about how you might handle that and what will be your plan B and C, uh, the better prepared you'll be for the, the physical, but also the mental and emotional setbacks that can come with that. I like that. Yeah. 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 It almost sides up, steps us into visualization, which I would say goal settings, you know, as far as mental skills that I use, I mean, I think I probably mm -hmm. use a bunch as far as refocus and stuff like that. But visualization, I, I think, is one that seems kooky to a lot of people, but to me, yeah. it is such a critical skill for even life, like thinking through, like I'll, I'll sit in, if we're going to a clinic that I'm running, like I'll sit and, you know, Molly caught me one time I, just recently, mm -hmm. just sort of sitting there with my eyes closed or even sometimes open and just thinking through the entire clinic and, you know, what, mm -hmm. what am I going to say? Where are we going to do it? What are the, you know, what are the key like logs I need to find randomly in the forest, you know, to make mm -hmm. this all work? And, and, you know, that's what I've definitely taken from my athletic career is these skills of visualization just to prepare for, you know, the things you have to do every day. Right. And we all have different elements. Yeah. Of this. It could be as simple as visualizing grocery store or something, but when people are yeah. first starting with visualization, do you have like an exercise that they can sort of play with the start or maybe even augment, you know, this goal setting with or, or something along those lines? Yeah, for sure. I mean, imagery is a great skill and tool and there's different ways, um, depending on what kind of learner you are, that you can even use it because, um, like you said, you sat there with your eyes closed and imagined it. So a good place to start is things you're already familiar with or things you've done, sort of the replay visualization. I always, there's a clip I always pay of Michael Phelps, the swimmer in my class or you'll see interviews with his coach and from a young young age he was told to just go home and replay the tape I think was the way his coach um, talked to him so you know developing that skill sort of replaying you know great moments in your training day or in your practice or even a race is a good a good way to start but then there's the individual aspect that uh, and then the the visual part too is that there's so many great videos online I know we we're talking cyclocross earlier and sometimes I know for me as a mountain biker, when I'd watch, you know, a bunch of downhill videos, it just like would imprint that relaxed, fluid body language that I was aspiring to have on my mountain bike. So sometimes, uh, or you, if you watch a video just before going out, it kind of can help those uh, neuromuscular connections, which is, which is what's so powerful about imagery and visualization that it's like you're living you can either relive the experience and cement the skills that you've done well you can prepare for like you talked about your clinic it might help allow you to prepare for those well what if this comes up what if the you know the log scenarios are different um things that or questions you might get in a clinic you know it's like that's the what if part right. um but also some people you know some of the athletes i've worked with they like to write out their scripts so if they're writers and that's the way they learn. Sort of their imagery comes from sort of writing out their their script. Or some people, when we're talking mountain biking, like to draw the course out on paper. So they have an actual, with key key obstacles or key sections. So there's lots of different ways you can approach it and start yeah. using it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the journal and the course visualization just sort of laying there and thinking about it is a good one. Mm -hmm. how, how do you stand on, you know, using like a GoPro video or something like that if someone has access to that for a course, uh, like a, a mountain biking trail running, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think that could be a, an excellent tool um, 
to if you're either using it on yourself to come back and look at, or I'm sure, you know, others have uploaded them online. Um, and even in advance, you know, for, you know, when athletes fly into a venue they've never been to, it can, it, you know, it's never as good as real life, obviously, but it can give you some familiarity with the course to say, okay, I've already seen this. And the more you're kind of mental, that's the mental preparation, like I was expecting this. And then, so yeah, it can certainly be helpful. Have you used that as a tool yourself or with Yeah, we use it a fair bit. Because I mean, in, in yeah. mountain biking, at least until e-bikes become very, you know, a little bit better and then everyone will just ride mm-hmm. e-bikes all day long and pre-ride. But, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Because you can only pre-ride so much because of, you know, the course is closed or yeah. you, know, you only have so much energy in the days before the race, right? So yeah, we'll definitely do, you know, those between one and three pre-ride laps and then, you know, maybe not even mm-hmm. go on the course the day before, depending on the athlete and then use the video to try and just keep that mental image fresh, right? So you're not hesitant. Yeah. The big thing I think is that people don't realize how much they hesitate between stuff. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to process that next section, right? And and if you, yeah. you know what's coming and you, like, it's like when you ride your favorite local trail versus, you know, you're riding a trail for the first time, right? There's obviously right. a difference. Um, so to me, it's, you know, both the visualization and the video. I don't think I would use only video because to me, I need, mm-hmm. to, I need to remember it too. Yeah. The kinesthetic feel of how the bike feels on it as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's a good point of visualization too, that you can only, you only managing energy too because you can only ride like you said a course so many times and you need to recover physically so it can just supplement that with a bit more rehearsal as well yeah so then let's move let's do another what do you think do you have another favorite mental skill or or, um the only one i can think of is focus refocus but do you have one that you you find yourself using a lot you know if we were going to pick a third one sort of deal with today um, I don't know if we've covered most of them between like the goal setting, visualizing and the, the focus are probably the, uh, the three key, I guess a recovery tool, I think just because it's a bit more, I hate to use the word trendy, but top of mind these days with sports and athletes is sort of a, I think, you know, these are tools and skills that we use to sort of, uh, strengthen our mental capacity and mental toughness, you could call it. But I think it's also important to, you know, especially with masters athletes or anyone who has a lot going on is the mental recovery tools as well. So a lot of the athletes I work with are quite interested and um, apply medi- like mindfulness training or meditation training. So, you know, just so you're talking about visualization there, uh, it is also a skill to be able to switch off and recover. So you might have an athlete uh, mentally rehearsing, you know, there's a, there's a point of where that can become too fatiguing too, because it still comes at a cost of mental energy and you know, a bit of bit of anxiety, I'm sure, comes comes to mind when you're constantly going over the course. So the ability to just shut down and sort of let your mind sort of relax and be still um, is also part of the mental emotional skills repertoire. So that's I always an app that a lot of athletes I work with like is Headspace. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's um it's just a, a mindfulness meditation app and there it starts with sort of ten minute sessions. And it's kind of their, their mental recovery tool. And then there's different, um, there's kind of sports specific ones. And it kind of, it's also like training. It kind of has a progression it takes you through. So yeah, that's probably another skill that's I've been using a lot more recently. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. That sort of downtime, um, you know, and pe- people will say they, they find that during their sports or their long rides or whatever, but m- more often than not, and I'm as guilty as anyone at this, but I think sometimes we're missing that, you know, just ability to sit still and I guess mm-hmm. you call it stillness or mindfulness. But I, I think it's sometimes different for a lot of people. And uh, there's probably some people that can find that while moving and moving meditation. But mm-hmm. And, I, I you know, yeah. we, we all have to get to sleep at some point. So, you know, just being yeah. able to wind down and, you know, not think about that race or, you know, whether it went good or bad, right, is, you know, a, I, I think a critical skill if you're someone who's, you know, having to perform late at night or, or just at all. Right. Yeah. And turning off that left side of the brain that's always analyzing, thinking and planning. And ironically, even though we we're looking at this as mental recovery and downtime, that it's also training your focus to just stay focused on one thing, whether it's your breathing, it's a very relaxed thing. And if you look at athletes who are performing in their peak or in their that zone or um, flow state, there's just that total mind body awareness is just immersed into one thing. And so you're not get you're you're getting recovery, but you're also 
learning to just, and we know our best performances happen when we're just in that, um, that state of just one focus and everything else fades away. And that's what this mindfulness training can do as well. So do you think most people, you know, is that the difference between a peak performer and a normal performer? Like do most people find the zone? Um, you, the difference between a peak performer and a what performer you said? Like, an, like the rest of us, I guess. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> fifth place over here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a loaded word, the zone, because it can be different for everyone. Um, but it, is, it relates back to what we're saying with goals, too. It's when you're in that something, you're optimally challenged and you're just, you're just totally immersed. I'm reading it when we're speaking of books right now. Have you heard of The Rise of Superman? Uh, oh yeah. yeah yeah it's just top of mind right now when you're talking about that state and it's it it explores the limits of you know ultimate it calls it not just peak but ultimate human performance um and flow with all these super high risk sports like skydiving mountain biking's in there yeah. surfing you know base jumping all those things where one wrong move and you're dead essentially so yeah these athletes and i think it's through years of training and practice they get to a point where they they have they can't be analyzing or thinking they have to be so immersed in the present moment and so that is uh, a very you know we can be in flow without perform being hitting a peak performance you know you can be in flow when we're totally immersed in a book or or riding your favorite trail where you're not thinking and you're just or hanging out with friends or immersed in a school project but it is a key component i think that does is a big piece of performing at our, our peak when we can turn off that sort of thinking, analyzing, or like you called it, hesitating for the next feature. Because when you're in flow, you're not hesitating. You're just sort of committed and yeah, one on with your bike, so like, to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I always use the, like, what's next, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. that's been a key word I've pretty much always used is just, you know, ask, keep asking myself what's next and not, you know, if I just fell, there's still what's next, yeah. right? If I, I just had to fix a flat, there's still what's next. Yeah. Is that a good way to get someone into it? Or like, you know, how do you get someone towards that um, flow state? Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a great example you just gave, because it's like that forward, what's the next step, what's right in front of me kind of state. And that's one thing my master's study was interviewing our best mountain bikers at the time in Canada, how they refocus. And you just brought up a great point in whether it's cyclocross or mountain biking, when you know, there might be a feature that you're scared of or that you, for some athletes, had a bad crash on and they have to come around to it the next lap. And that was their advice. And I think a key to what you're just saying is that your mind can't be stuck on what just happened behind you or too far ahead that it's half a lap away and you're already hesitating. You just have to be like, what's the next section, the next turn? And if you're constantly able to say that, then you're you're training yourself to just be in the present the whole time. So... I think that's a great little little tool you've got going for yourself there. Well, I may have stolen it from that study. I definitely have that study in my like little yeah. folder of, of research studies and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, the only So we only have a couple more here. I don't want to keep you too long. Mm -hmm. So the other question I wanted to get sort of out of you, it sort of goes back towards goals. Um, and there seems to be a bit of a push right now that like it's not so much about that long-term goal. It's more about sort of those daily habits. And I think it's sort mm -hmm. of people are just turning the, the lingo and the, the vernacular around to you know, yeah. use that daily goal setting. You were sort of talking about that short-term goal setting and, and inserting the word habit in there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but those habits, I guess, are building towards the long term. But I'm wondering if we, we focused on those daily goals or those daily habits, so something like brushing your teeth or uh, I'm trying to think of a cycling one, right? But like, you know. Yeah. I guess having your bike all clean and stuff like that would be another one. So is there anything, mm -hmm. you know, from your experience in setting up those daily goals or habits, you know, some, is there a way to sort of get those sort of done and make sure that we're doing them for those, you know, they call, say 21 days or whatever that it takes to, to make that just your, your usual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, well, the planning is part of it. Cause the one, one example you just mentioned there was, um, keeping your bike clean is a simple one. And we tend to procrastinate the most or put off the daily work for goals that are, are anxiety producing or we're going to be evaluated on. So it might be studying for a test, even 
aspects of getting ready for a race or things that are tedious and boring, like mowing the lawn, um, cleaning or cleaning your bike. So by having a specific plan can definitely help say, this is the time I will clean my bike every week. And just like um, brushing your teeth, we probably don't remember how that became a habit. But if you, if any parent would know you're, you have to work really hard and you're always reminding kids to brush their teeth and at some point it becomes a habit. So I guess that's the social aspect too, that can be a great incentive if you have someone to be accountable to you, um, if you're working at making something a habit. Um, And I think it's important to remember that rewards can be good if used, used well, but sometimes they undermine things that we're already doing because we enjoy them. So if you're already enjoying a a goal pursuit, for example, the research shows that athletes who go go to university or college with a scholarship, sometimes that can undermine their already enjoyment of the sport. Or at a younger age, preschoolers who are enjoy drawing, when they start to get rewards for doing something they already enjoy, they do it less. So, um, you know, that part of motivation is is important to to remember that using rewards sporadically can be helpful, but not if you're pairing, like, every time I do a hard interval workout, I'm going to eat chocolate cake. Great reward, but if you do that all the time, then it's probably not going to help you eat your goals, but also uh, you don't want to become too dependent on them. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I mean you could probably pick more appropriate um, you know, maybe goal-based things that you're going to pair things together with maybe. Like I have heard the example mm-hmm. of, you know, you don't get to shower unless you actually exercise that day. Right. <laughs> Cuz you're saving the environment too. I, I would really prefer yeah. that you don't go with that goal. <laughs> well, I I work out most days, but yeah. most being the keyword yeah. there. Um, yeah. and I'm trying to think of other ones like, you know, if you did your intervals, like maybe if you don't do your intervals during the week, then you're going to miss the group ride because you're going to have to do your intervals, you know, on the weekend or something. Like if someone's very, like really likes the group ride or something, like maybe that's Yeah. Be... For group incentives, for sure. That could be effective. Yeah. 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 Negative reinforcement there. Yeah. You're taking all the social enjoyment out of yeah, the sport. Geez. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. so then couple other you mentioned a couple books i'll try and find links to all the ones we've mentioned so far is there any other books that you feel like i guess personally have sort of shaped your thinking on you know sports psychology or sport generally or or even just life i always say like i just want to know if i want to know more about you like what would be like what book comes to mind Ooh, good question i'm always reading a million different books but um i think another book that i really like that I've read recently that applies just to life in general and sport is um, the book by Angela Duckworth and her research on grit and it's a lot of great storytelling as well um, the sub line I think is the power of passion and perseverance so um, that's a that's definitely a, a book I would recommend um, yeah for some great, great one I like yeah that a lot. yeah um but other than that, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, okay, I mean, we have Terry's yeah. book in there, and we have the Rise of Superman, and then mm-hmm. maybe even just for my own sake, uh, what was the book you mentioned as well? I'm trying to find that note. Uh, right off the top, we talked about... I can't even read my... We, we're talking about Milgram and social psychology. Oh, we were just talking about the Stanford prison experiment Yeah. with... Uh, with group process and things. Yeah, that's, um, it's actually, there's videos of it online. I'm not sure if there's an actual okay, I book think, about all that. Yeah. Okay, I'm trying to remember what the book was, but I, I have some sort of note here. So we'll go back and we'll okay. find that one. Anyhow, we'll put in the links. Mm-hmm. And then our last question is, is there a consummate athlete that you know, you know, maybe someone you've come up with in your training or locally, or just someone you know who would be a great consummate athlete that we could interview in the future? And not your brother, because mm. we've already had him on. <laughs> I was going to say, well, he does know how to train for psychocross, if you've seen his latest video. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> yeah. So good. 
<laughs> well, no, when he was on, he would like I knew he would, had been working on that for a, however long it's been. It's been a couple of years, I think. But he meant I, we sort of asked him about that, so he did say it was like in the works and he was close, but he wasn't quite there yet. And I'm that actually was a couple months ago. I'm now wishing mm-hmm. we'd just redone this whole episode with like goal setting as getting to that well, particular I was going goal. To do that, yeah. but that, I was yeah. like, Danielle's got a lot of stuff on her own, so I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> That's <but>. true. <laughs> um. Oh, good question. I guess just because of uh, linking um, some of the stuff we've talked to in cyclocross, you know who would be interesting? When we're talking about long-term motivation and evolving as an athlete, I think of my Luna teammate. um, You probably know her, obviously, uh, Katerina Nash. Yeah, for sure we do. You know, like her whole, like to be be at the top of her sport for so long and from winter – winter sport as a skier first i mean i can probably think of others but uh no she's that's something that always fascinates me is the motivation and the intensity and the discipline to um continue at that level for that long and how you you know stay creative and keep it fun Mm -hmm. um when you're still top five at world cups and for sure yeah i don't don't know how she does it she's my favorite because after she won the world cup at jingle cross she was out to dinner with like all of her teammates and stuff and she's the only one that's like you know having a glass of wine with dinner no one else is drinking (laughs) like yeah i i actually already bullied her so she's gonna she's gonna be coming on at some point in her future too yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Now, Danelle, uh, actual last question. How can people get a hold of you, you know, if they want to consult uh, with you? Well, I do. Like you mentioned, my blog, I have kind of fallen off the blogging train. But through that blog and website, I do have a contact form if anyone's interested to, to find out more information about one-on-one or team consultations. And it's just uh, my name, com. Awesome. Perfect. And we'll put the links in there. Uh, thank you for your time, Danelle. We'll talk to you and hopefully see you soon. I'd love to get back out to Victoria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me know when you guys might be out. It was fun chatting with you. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.